Hey everybody, before we get cooking on this episode, I wanted to let you know about a really cool sound effects library featuring amazing sounds recorded in the Philippines that was just released by a friend of this podcast, Tim Nielsen. All the money from purchases of the library will go straight to charitable causes and people in need in the Philippines. By purchasing, you will be helping people with food and shelter. If you navigate to tonemenderspodcast.com, find the page for this episode. There you will find links to where you can hear demos and purchase the library. It is nine gigs of great sounds that are fully mastered with clear UCS metadata. It's a win-win situation. You get great sounds for your library, and people in the Philippines get a much-needed boost. So please, go check it out. Okay, now let's start the episode. Never thought I'd get to say this, but uh, over to you, Paul McCartney. It's a love that lasts forever. Repeat that, even though it sounds funny. It'll be all right. And then, don't you know it's going to last? Just try it through roughly. Just... We're rehearsing and we're trying to like get it together for a TV show. So we've been, like you said, we've only been through four numbers. Mm. Well, so we've probably got to get some system to get through like 20 or 30 and no more and I've learned. Simply because we should concentrate on the sound. Simply because we should concentrate on the sound. Thank you very much. Hi, this is Teresa Morrow. Welcome to Tone Benders. Today we're going to be talking about the extraordinary documentary miniseries, The Beatles Get Back. To make this series, director Peter Jackson was entrusted with the 1969 footage that was made into the film Let It Be, documenting 21 days of the Beatles writing and rehearsing the music that would become their last studio album. Our guests joining us from Wellington, New Zealand, are the sound crew who were handed the responsibility of giving new life to the quarter-inch Nagra recordings from that film shoot. Stay with us for an exclusive listen to the amazing audio restoration made possible by the machine learning tools developed and refined by this sound team. Tim Muirhead and Renee Coronado are your hosts. Here's Tim. So joining us today, we have Brent Burge and Martin Kwok, the film's co-supervising sound editors. Welcome to the show. Uh, How early did you guys get on board with this? Hey, Tim. Um, Steve and I actually got invited into Peter's cutting room to have a listen to a particular day that he had kind of put together. We'd had some information that he was working on a Beatles doco. And so we popped into the cutting room and we were in the company of a director whose obvious passion for this project became evident in the fact that we then walked out of the cutting room six hours later, having had him show us a lot of material and what he loved about the Beatles and what, how the show was going to be constructed, et cetera, et cetera. It was, a, um, it was one of those where you just drop in to see the director in the cutting room and you walk out afterwards with your head spinning. <laughs> and uh, Martin, when did you come on board? Uh, so I think it was about August 2019. Brent had been on board with Steve Gallagher, who uh, was our music editor for the show, and they were starting to get into some heavy dialogue sequences, which is my background. I've always been attached to the dialogue side for the films that Peter and Fran make here. And uh, I do remember hearing some stuff and then 
I was looking at them thinking, okay, I know that these pictures are going to end up looking immaculate because we'd already been through the restoration process on Peter's World War I documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. And my immediate concern was, what are we supposed to do with this audio? I mean, it's a mono piece of string. We're in deep trouble. I can't hear what Peter wants me to bring out of it. But we set about, in our traditional ways at that point, trying to make a way through it. Ironically, it was the pandemic that put a handbrake on the project for a while and also gave us probably the time to have a rethink about how to approach this stuff. So that's all been part of the journey. But it was back in, I think, August of 2019, just as the whole project was starting to pitch, they were going to show it to some studios to uh, see who was interested. So the aforementioned Steve Gallagher was the music editor on the project. Steve, how much did your brain explode when you were approached about being a music editor on this? Like, this seems like the actual dream project for a music editor. Yes, absolutely. It was, uh, especially after the meeting with Peter that Brent described, where we sat for, as Brent said, about six hours, Peter showed us the 80-minute cut of day four, and then just talked about the project at length and showed us other segments of the footage that he had talked about the history behind the Get Back project, the history of them recording the album, how they ended up playing on the roof at the end of January. I mean, I'm a big Beatles fan. I think all of us grew up having a music as part of your DNA. And it was like going to a, a history class and just learning about things that, that were just surprising. You had kind of no idea about. And the idea that there was intimate footage and we could see this intimate footage of this team, really, of these musicians working together to create the songs that came out on Let It Be. It's probably a cliche, but I think the Beatles are like one of the greatest romances of the 20th century in a way. And to have the opportunity to feel like you're in the room with them as they're working on their material, I couldn't dream of this thing. So I, I, I sent them an email afterwards just saying, look, that was such an amazing meeting. If I walk out of the building now and I get hit by a bus, that's fine. I'm happy. It's okay. <laughs> So the last guest that we have is Emile Delaray, who is the developer of the Mal software. Well, Emile, I guess I'll let you tell us what it is, because uh, it's pretty groundbreaking. Yeah, so I came on board December 2020, and at that stage we were doing sort of a more traditional edit pass of what was supposed to be two hours, but turned into six, I think. And so um, immediately the challenge of both the dialogue and music edit were self-evident. I sat and watched through the, I think, the, the six-hour cut. And it was a bit of an onslaught of just really dense sound. You know, you're trying to hear the dialogue. Uh, you're trying to follow the, the narrative and the story that Peter's trying to tell. But uh, you're also having to sort of mentally cut through this wall of other sounds. Yeah. Um, just because it's all baked into the Nagra. Um, we had a really good go with the tools that we had available at the time. Like there was a splitter, which is a, um, a music stem separator. You know, it separates things into uh, vocals, drums, bass, and other instruments. And Isotope RX Music Rebalance, I think it pretty much uses the splitter models as its engine. So very similar results. And we had to go with those tools. But the best thing they could really provide for us is just a little bit of an extra helper on top of what was already there, just to try and push that dialogue up a little bit more or push it down a bit more to let the music come through and that sort of thing. So uh, just before that, uh, during the, the lockdowns and all that throughout the year, not having much work on, I kind of became obsessed with machine learning because it's a globally growing area of research. So many people are getting involved with that now. But I think uh, the main thing is that the tools that are available to people like me are just a lot more accessible. And so I was able to start sort of playing around with it a little bit and 
noticed that, you know, while we were tackling this initial edit, started noticing that various papers were tackling this issue of source separation more and more successfully. And so we started looking into that in January, but um, most of the research was being done at low sample rates. Not something that you can use for editing a film, you know, you don't want to, you, you can't do much with dialogue processed at 8K or whatever. But um, we even did consider that at the time because it could provide this, this helper layer. You know, if we can at least separate something out, it can give us a little bit more signal. Um, from there, it was really just a snowball rolling down the hill because uh, as I got more and more into it, I was teaching myself how to develop this further. From my own experience as a uh, dialogue editor, being super familiar with noise reduction tools and uh, what is and isn't a good result, I was able to hone the, um, the architectures that were out there into something that was much more usable for us. Uh, and it just, you know, there were steps, these eureka steps along the way. And one of them was reaching the 48K sample rate. That changed everything. Yeah, it did, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's kind of worth looking at the timeline in terms of when Brent and Steve first had a look at the material, it was probably like June, July uh, 2019. By the time I was having a look at it, it was August 2019. And at that point, we were 12 months away from delivery. It was supposed to be a two-hour feature-length project released in August of 2020. So I don't know what happened, <laughs> but we all got we all got involved. Um, and, and we dived so, into RX. A lot, we were using a lot of tools that we had available to us, and a lot of it was really manual at a really rudimentary level. It was based around the idea of just trying to extract instruments by drawing them out using RX, for example, which was the kind of just to get the voices clear of the players who just would not stop playing. They just kept playing and playing and playing over everything they talked about, and their conversation wouldn't change. They would just talk at a normal conversational level while George was just strumming away and doing some work on his guitar, electric guitar. So that was early, early days. And it was obvious it wasn't going to be a result that we could really feel that we had the silver bullet on. Also, the fact that, uh, I mean, this is monotape with all of those inherent problems. And yeah. we knew that picture was going to look amazing. And we were heading for a near-field Dolby Atmos mix. So <laughs> the idea of not only that dialogue separation to get clarity of the narrative across, but just the balance of all those instruments and the things that fans want to hear. They want to hear the band jamming, you know, and for it not to be what we experienced early days, which was absolute audio fatigue. So sometimes you'd be listening to something for 10 minutes and you thought, God, how long have I been in here? It feels like half an hour. Um, so there was a major factor of trying to drill through to the information that you really needed. And uh, we didn't have that with the existing tools. But, you know, uh, the pandemic arriving meant that the project was stalled. Putting people into theatres in August of 2020 was a terrible idea. Mm -hmm. So um, we, we basically down-tooled for about 12 months and then came back to it improper at the end of 2020, which is when, um, thankfully, Emil and uh, Andrew Moore, our f amazing um, first assistant sound editor, came on board and there was just a small crew of us that picked up the material that had sprung from two hours into about six. <laughs> um, and we went from there. Is it worth talking about getting the police involved? Did we talk about that we went to the police? Oh, that well, was only on the party, Steve. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> we, we did consult the police uh, to a degree, that's right. Um, I have a friend who's the forensic audio guy at the New Zealand Police Force, and they have a Cedar Cambridge system there, and we're like, well, we've got to go check it out. So we did, and it was 
impressive, you know, like the broadband noise on a dime. It was doing some good things. And I was like, I could kind of get there in RX, but not that quick. And I was like, well, what are you going to do with those guitar overtones? And uh, my mate James was like, well, I'm just going to paint them out. And I was like, me too. And at that point, you're at some point going to be degrading the audio and, and taking the dialogue with it. So we realized that Cedar wasn't actually the solution either. But we had had limited success with uh, Splitter uh, in about September. We'd opened up Peter's first ever film that is in the process of being remastered. And we had some material tied to an effects and music combined stem and um, wanted to see what we could get out of that using the nascent Splitter early neural network stuff that we were seeing. And it provided a result that was a bit gritty but had potential. We could see, just like RX were putting in music rebalance and stuff, that this was where it was going. I think fortunately for us, we had brain boxes like Emil and Andrew Moore as well, who has been uh, heavily involved with uh, our good friend Justin Webster, uh, who's been a part of the sound edit community and from Cargo Cult. Um, and has been part of the development of a lot of that software and plugins. So Andrew has worked with um, Justin and brought some of his game to it, and the combination of him and Emil was part of the magic bullet in terms of being able to bring the right people together with the right interests and not only the nous to be able to get in under the hood and really start messing with stuff, but importantly, always doing it as an empirical study. So like the numbers were coming back one way, we were seeing some results where the science was saying this should sound better and we were like, no, it doesn't. And so we were always using our ears to make sure that we were moving in the right direction. Hey, I'll just point out one thing that we were, um, very briefly, before the machine learning came through, one of the great things we discovered about RX is that everything you remove from RX, you can feed in out of phase into the track to create effectively a stem because it's sample accurate when it comes back into the workstation. So in using RX, one of the early iterations of how we were trying to get control of the track was to actually just do this process of pulling more and more instruments out and then putting it back in against the original Nagra tape out of phase, actually digitised Nagra tape out of phase, to create that separation where you have a little bit of a guitar, you can determine how much of that guitar gets fed into it as well. So, I mean, the RX stuff kind of set us up on a good track, but things just started to blow our minds once Andrew and Emil came on. Brett, can you tell us a little bit about the source recordings themselves? Was it multi-mics in the room that were then mixed in a mixer down to a mono Nagra track, or was it like one mic up mostly? What kind of source were you actually dealing with? It's, well, it's literally one sound recordist, Peter Sutton, yeah. He went on to do uh, Empire Strikes Back and Labyrinth and stuff like that. Yeah, yep. And I mean, what a job. They had cameras literally being fly on the wall. Every day, the band would turn up, the crew would turn up, and then they would have to determine what they were going to shoot. And in shooting that, the sound recordist had to be following along diligently behind or capturing whatever he felt uh, was important at the time. This is where Peter talks about the fact that there's a lot of disconnected audio and picture that had to be painstakingly sunk up. And we're talking about a single mono Naga track, which was being sunk up to two cameras, which were running at different speeds, effectively, because they weren't <laughs> crystal locked together. 
So there was a huge amount of pre-work in terms of getting the audio in sync with whatever picture they could find to sync up to it, because there were no claps. It was all just pretty much done seat of the pants style. Until they got to Savile Row, where things started to get a little more under control, I think, eh? A little. (laughs) There's still a lot to contend with at all times uh, for the sound recordist for the film, as well as the fact that they were trying to track a lot of this as rehearsals that were going to lead to a live album. So there were two recordings going on simultaneously. They had some tricks, didn't they, during the shoot? where they were doing things like putting tape over the uh, record light on the cameras, and they would walk over to the camera, switch the camera on, and then walk away as if they were just going to go and make a cup of tea. And the Beatles obviously thought there was nothing happening and the cameras weren't shooting, so they could talk more candidly to each other. <laughs> yeah. P- part of what Michael Lindsay Hogg was able to capture was that intimacy of uh, almost like sneak recording and filming. Um, so by not really announcing when that was happening in terms of both the audio capture as well as the film, it meant that there was a lot more in the the bank, so to speak, than if they were setting up for a traditional shoot. However, what that meant was you did have these two 16mm cameras that were not crystal sync locked uh, and a sound recorder that was recording in between uh, and were trying to get as much coverage as possible. So the idea of actually putting all that together was a huge task. It was a quagmire of different sources. And I think it's almost a bit similar to the uh, Amazing Grace documentary that was incredible in that uh, Sidney Pollock shot all that material for those sessions in LA in 72 or whatever, but it it took another 30 or 40 years for non-linear digital editing systems to be used to sort of go, okay, now we can actually piece this crazy timeline together. It was before that too hard because things were moving at a different speed and there was no sync claps and stuff, so... Aretha's album sounded great and got recorded well, but the idea of all that amazing footage was lost in the vaults for 30 to 40 years. And so I think Get Back is in a similar boat to that in that it took time for the technology to come together to utilise all of what was captured in those days. And that accounted to about 50 to 60 hours of film and closer to about 140, 150 hours of audio. So the idea of putting that together was massive and involved a lot of people over the last, uh, I think 2003 is when uh, Apple Corp, uh, the Beatles management company, started looking at it. And from there, I think around 2007, they started getting transcriptions happening of what they thought uh, was being said uh, during during those sessions, and then shoot forward to 2017 when renewed interest as the 50th anniversary of Let It Be approached. That brought Apple to the table in terms of like they wanted to properly resync the Nagra audio to new 24-frame telecine scans and basically a fresh picture and audio ingestion. But because uh, the cameras in Nagra were all largely running independently of each other, the footage and audio is quite fragmented and non-sequential. So there was a lady by the name of Tamsin Jeffrey in the UK that began an avid assembly of the, you know, the total timeline of each day of filming, which was spread across three weeks in January 1969, uh, with the special case of Day 21 being the rooftop concert when there was more cameras on the roof, street and uh, other rooftops and more audio sources as well. And by 2018, that's when it started to land in our corner of the world, if you will. The project was picked up by Peter Jackson after meeting with Apple Corp, uh, Jonathan Clyde and Jeff Jones there. And this was after they'd seen the groundbreaking work that Peter had done on They Snow Rock Old, which dramatically raised the bar for film restoration and remastering. And it gave the Beatles 
confidence that the often misunderstood, maligned, let it be footage was in good hands. And so at that point, all the assets that Apple and Abbey Road had assembled were sent to Park Road Post Productions here in Wellington. And another phase of the archaeological digging and piecing together happened, and that was handled by the editor, uh, Jabez Olson, alongside uh, the first assistants, initially Dan Best, who's been uh, part of the team down here for many years, and uh, later on handing over to Elliot Travers as well. So they then kept piecing bits together, and I'm talking about, like, this crazy stories about them, like, finding stuff on the stolen bootleg Nagra tapes from back in the day and getting them off the dark web to be able to try and piece together little bits of the story that was out there but missing from them. There was also Apple had sent uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg's original work print, uh, which had SEPMAG audio, so we were able to piece together more little bits of lost audio, and that was a huge task. But what that gifted us with was a very thorough, what we call our master day roles, so every day, a full timeline from beginning to end and whether if there was picture there we'd see it if there was audio there we'd see it and as close as you can get to being part of those 21 days is what we have in those master day roles so steven as the music editor how did you interact with that whole process initially after the sense of awe kind of subsided <laughs> and the magnitude of what we had to do i kind of put my head in my hands and cried that was the first part. <laughs> um from a musical perspective as much as we could, we were trying to make things in sync because as Martin and Brent was, were talking, two different Nagra recorders, two different cameras, not synced. And there were sequences where things would drift out and it took us, Brent, what was that song? Was it Get Back? When Paul writes Get Back, the camera pulls out and Ringo starts playing the drums along to that track and the difference between the A and the B Nagra recording, <laughs> <laughs> it took us a while to figure out they weren't in sync. Yeah. And it was doing our heads in because the sync difference wasn't huge, but it was enough to to just make you question your sanity. And I didn't know Ringo was left-handed. When you watch old footage of Jimi Hendrix playing the guitar and you look at his fingers moving on the fretboard, to me it doesn't make sense. I just I just can't understand what he's doing. He's left-handed playing, you know, a right-handed guitar. Ringo is a left-handed drummer playing a right-handed drum kit. And he leads, like in his fills, he leads with, you know, his left hand. And just sort of like things like that kind of did my head in as well. So we went through every single frame of the entire series and tried to figure out the frame difference that would put the audio back in sync with the picture. That was our first job, to, to basically analyze the state of the sync and send suggestions back to the cutting room so that they could move the picture back so the audio and, and picture would then be in sync. Like for context, what's the total runtime of the series? Uh, now? I think it's <laughs> six hours, but then um, it was... Uh... <laughs> no, it's, it's eight hours, isn't it? See, this is what I, uh, I, uh, I apologize, my, uh, my rather adult sense of yeah, time. It's daunting <laughs> either way. Time becomes relative. But, but that was the most, that was the, the first point of call. We had to go in and, um, and just basically, yeah, look through everything, try to give the cutting room a solution whereby a small shift of picture would improve the sync, which is not a workflow that I'm used to. It's usually the other way around. Um, is that right, Brent? Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Because uh, Peter's intent was um, around story. He did throw us some challenges in terms of the um, the music and around 
the story pieces and there were some challenges we had to solve. Yeah, there yeah, was some... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, his focus was story, as Brent was saying. So sometimes he, he wouldn't necessarily pay attention to the fact that he's making a picture edit two and a half beats into a 5-4-1, a blues turnaround. If you take those beats out of the blues turnaround it suddenly doesn't work in the traditional manner of the blues. But but here are four guys who've been playing, you know, uh, like a standard blues rock and roll structure since they were teenagers and they've been playing it together and they have an unspoken chemistry. This music they could play in their sleep. So it's things like that that we, we tried to find solutions for. Just saying, well, look, they're changing to the five chord here, but you've cut these beats out. But if we could put them back in, it completes the blues form or this form for this chord sequence which is, I think, the intent of this, uh, of this piece of music, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's kind of worth noting that the other part of the music picture was uh, the London end, kind of out of Abbey Road. Um, we did have the ear of Charles Martin and uh, Sam O'Kell, who worked with him as well, particularly for the eight-track material. that They handled the initial mixes of that before we got them to final mix. So with all of the work that Giles Martin has done for the Beatles over the years, you know, almost via osmosis, it's like really literally in his blood. So to be able to have that as something to something to fall back on and, and an ear to sort of go, are we on the right track? That was important for us to know that we were actually working to what the band would um, really want us to be doing. So, Emil, I'm endlessly fascinated by machine learning, as you are. And the question I have is, at what point did you kind of run into the limitations of the tools that existed and decide to just learn a whole new discipline? And what kind of support did you have from the production itself? Because, obviously, Peter Jackson has a long history of inventing software with his teams to tackle issues. Uh, in terms of limitations of the, the existing solutions, it really was about trying um, the music rebalance, the splitter, um, uh, cedar that we... Uh, did you talk about the police before? Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. ultimately, none of them yielded good quality. And, you know, the, the, that spectral artifacting, that watery quality that, that is so frustrating with Fourier-based um, processing, it really started with a, just a little test. Uh, so Andrew Moore and I worked together on this uh, during Get Back, and you know, uh, uh, Marty mentioned already he has um, experience of software development. Uh, so I mainly focused on the machine learning itself, the models, the training, the architecture development, and so forth. And Andy worked in parallel with me on developing the um, the plugin, the UI, uh, and the infrastructure we needed to actually do the training and processing. Uh, so, you know, the first little seed of hope was just at home on my GPU, on my 1080 Ti, I think, uh, just uh, ran a test with a couple of files, trying to separate two voices, training it on these small data set. At the time, not really knowing what would happen, and it wasn't good, but uh, it was different to previous separation attempts I'd heard. There was no wateriness. The artifacts were different. It was more like white noise type interference, and immediately there was a realization that now we can deal with this. Maybe there's some hope here. And I showed it to Marty and Brent, and everyone kind of realized that, yeah, okay, this might be possible. So um, the big thing here is that not once along the process could I say for certain, hey, this is going to work. <laughs> I'm going to spend 80 hours a week on this, and at the end of the production paying me for my time, I'm going to be able to um, provide this result or this tool. There were no guarantees ever because it was completely unexplored territory for me and for everyone. Uh, so it was a process of slowly building up the amount of resources that were put into this. And it started with one machine, and then it became two, and 
four. And eventually we had the whole building's GPUs at our disposal when it quickly became evident that there was a lot of promise here. And because the more you train, the more successful the results, if you're training with the correct kind of data. Uh, and so part of that was that we recorded our own data set here in this room, actually, voices. I think uh, we started out reading just um, public domain text, but then ended up reading scripts from interviews uh, with the Beatles. Ah, oh, there you go. And I don't know if that was adding to some element of their success, but, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we slowly morphed into English accents uh, eventually with the hope, again, uh, a blind hope that this would help somehow. So, um, you know, skipping a few of the details, we ended up with a pretty good 24 kilohertz um, separation model that could separate voice from anything else. And it was still 24 kilohertz, so we still had this issue that, well, we can't really use this as our hero audio, even though it's doing its job. And, you know, there were other factors as well, like the separation was still not pristine. And then uh, shortly after that, I found a way to, you know, operate on this model, transplant it to 48 kilohertz, start training with 48 kilohertz audio, and then things just started clicking. So we ended up with this really good 48 kilohertz dialogue from everything else model. And at that stage, Marty realized that he had to start from scratch with the whole edit because, um, and, and that's a fact, that, that's kind of how it was all, all the way, you know, because the improvement in quality is a bit of an exponential curve. The further you develop the tools, there's always this question of, uh, well, do I go back? You know, do I redo this whole day's <laughs> right. worth of editing now because this is so much better now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it's all bleeding edge, and it was literally being developed as we were doing the show. And so as iterations came along and improvements were made, we had to then reevaluate things that had come before. For example, my, I'd mixed a particular day and went back in to do some more work on it, realised that we were still using the previous models, uh, which were more... It was leaning on the original Nagra material more than yeah. the machine learning uh, at that With point. With this embellishment on top, yeah. Hmm. yeah. And we had to go back and pretty much take the lid off it. Yeah, we kind of likened it very much to sort of building a plane that you have no instructions for, getting it in the air and then learning how to fly whilst you're still building it. And so yeah. we realised we were all in by about April, May of uh, 2021 that machine learning was really going to play a huge hand in not only cleaning out the problematic audio, but the way that we approached the edit for the entire show. And one of the great things about being here at Park Road Post is that we were able to tap into the rigs uh, with lots of GPUs um, down in the picture department after hours. And there's this at hilarious yeah. graph of seeing their usage through the day and there's little spikes and stuff like that just sort of going on as they're getting into their work. And then when they went home at 6 p.m. till 7 in the morning, it just went full noise <laughs> and we were just training constantly overnight. So that was a massive thing that Emil managed over pretty much the course of the entire job was making sure that there was no downtime on those machines. It, Mal was always learning. Very hungry customer is Mal for data. So we just kept feeding him the problems that we had and finding the right data sets for him to figure out, oh, is this what you mean? Once we figured out that machine learning was going to be part of the solution, we turned our attention to the actual treasure trove of that 150 hours of audio that was recorded and then went and found our food groups. I think there was about a week or two where all of us had downed tools from editing the show and went 
deep into data set mode. So we were looking at, well, what does the band sound like when they're all jamming? Oh, what is the, when, when George is just playing, what is it? And different voices, different extraneous noise um, uh, issues. There were things like the Nagra pulse tones um, oh that God. would be just blasting through the track, you know, when you least expected it and when you least needed it. And so those sort of things were like, okay, well, here's some uh, Nagra pulse tones that we can break out. They're clean and... Mal, please, learn all you can about these things. We don't want to hear them. Or more to the point, can you just pull them out on their own? And, and those Niagara uh, pop tones are a perfect example. We tried and tried and tried and could not get <laughs> rid of them in the mono audio we had. They were just like uh, the, the blood on the hands of Lady Macbeth. It just can't, it just the blood doesn't go away. But thanks to Mal, those things like that. <laughs> Five seconds, bam, gone. We're just going to interrupt real quick to remind you about the charity sound effects library I mentioned off the top of the episode and give you a few more details. When sound supervisor Tim Nielsen's wife, Lynn, was heading to the Philippines for an extended trip, he encouraged her to take along a recorder and gather some sounds. Upon her return, Tim heard the recordings, and he loved them. He mastered the recordings and added a lot of rich metadata, and it's now a collection of 125 sounds from around the Philippines, including traffic, rural ambiences, and other varied, unique sounds of the country. Lynn proposed the idea of selling these sounds to raise money to help the people in need back where she grew up. Tim paired about 50 of his own recordings from the Philippines, Macau, Hong Kong, and Singapore to add to the collection. All the money raised will go directly to projects for those in need in rural Philippines. To find links to hear demos and purchase the collection, please go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and you'll find everything you need on the page for this episode. It's a win-win situation. You get great sounds for your library, and people in the Philippines get a much-needed boost. So please, go check it out. Can we talk a little yeah. bit... Sorry, man. I was, I was just saying if we can talk no. a little bit about how Mal's came to be named. I'd love to know that. It's named after the road manager, correct? That's correct. So, yeah, we've got a lot of time for Mal Evans. He's one of the uh, heroes for us in, in Amongst Get Back, you know, just one of those solid background players that constantly gets the job done, very much like any good sound post department, you know. Um, so <laughs> it was a, a combination of just really falling in love with Mal as a character within Get Back, but also Emil just sort of like saw it as machine audio learning. And we we're like, yes, that's us. <laughs> Mal 9000. <laughs> Well, what we've talked about it a lot. You all were very gracious enough to send us some uh, examples of the Mal in action. Yeah. There's a scene in part two where uh, the Beatles have had a very malicious newspaper article come out about them. And uh, Paul is reading into a mic out loud this newspaper article while at the same time the band is playing and John is singing into a different mic. And uh, the original recording is just chaos it's mm. complete madness absolutely harrison's escapade with his favorite mystic hey, hey. from india early in the morning i'm giving you the walk don't you step on my blue suede early in the evening i'm giving you the feel but mal went in and pulled out just paul reading the article harrison's escapade with its favorite mystic from India, left Paul and Ringo aghast, and both felt obliged to try him out to see if they were missing anything. 
then pulled out uh, just the music. And then pulled out just John. Early in the morning, I'm giving you the war. Don't you step on my blue suede shoe. Early in the evening, I'm giving you the feel. And then you can play with the levels, and it goes from chaos into this really amusing scene that uh, everything's kind of weaving in and out and uh, is a really entertaining moment. I've never heard anything like that before, when you break out the pieces like that. I guess my question is, once you were able to do that, did you discover things were happening that you weren't aware of before? Was intent of things being said suddenly different once you pulled things apart? You are, you're, you're totally right. There was so much that came out of the exploration process of using Mao to unpick the Mononagra. Once a lot of that noise came out, we were able to hear stuff that was never heard before. And that also influenced the way that Peter was able to build the story. There was stuff that he in 2019 was like, well, there's probably a good conversation under there, but I can't hear it. Or there is a good conversation under here, but it's buried in so much noise that I'm never going to use it. So we were able to uh, open up the whole uh, gamut of what could be used in the show. But with regard to the way that the machine learning can focus on different aspects of the track. For example, the transcripts that had been started in 2007, they'd done a pretty good job of documenting what people were talking about, but it would quite often go to inaudible because it was covered in guitars or covered in drums or any other extraneous noise. And suddenly we were able to peel back those layers and fill in the blanks. So out of all of that, we became a lot more aware of other things happening in the room at the same time that uh, we wanted to either highlight or remove because it was actually just causing confusion to you know you as an audience member. So how did the music edit change once you had all the instruments split out? It's a, it's a it's complete game changer. There's just so many moments where we'd start off with a mono track, we'd run run it through Mal after some targeted training that that Andrew and Emil had done, and. Uh, you know, it's almost like voodoo that you're hearing now. Separate drums, separate bass, separate guitars, separate piano. Uh, in some cases, separate organs. In some cases, separate voices. Stylophone. Oh, stylophone, yeah. <laughs> but but not only that, it, 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 it gives you a lot more, obviously, a lot more flexibility, which is what we all like. At the end of the day, what we were moving towards was providing material to a near-field Dolby Atmos mix that Brent and Mike Hedges and uh, Alexis uh, Fedorov had to make their way through. And there was a lot to get through, and we needed it to be presented in a way where they had the flexibility to get the balance right. You needed, most importantly, to you know have the narrative that Peter and Jabez had found within this cavern of film and audio footage uh, and we needed to also represent that uh, the band was on an incredible creative process and being able to highlight what started as simple jams and ended up being released songs um, inside the, that three weeks. So to have that in a, in a mixing environment was, uh, was vital. Absolutely and, and also the fact that you're hearing you know from a mono track where the band are trying to work out a song you have George and John playing guitars, Paul playing bass, Ringo playing drums and hitting cymbals. And like, you know, as audio people, we know that cymbals especially carry, they cover a, a huge frequency spectrum, right? And to have those removed from a guitar, that's genius. It's, <laughs> I still can't get over it. Yeah. <laughs> to have that flexibility, that was amazing. 
It, it really was amazing. I, I've definitely got to say that I had a number of real emotional responses to the material that went into Mao and came back. There was days where Emil was like, hey, come in and check this one out. I've just got a new model going on, you know, this. And uh, I did. I, I wept a couple of times. I think I told him I loved him a couple of times. <laughs> I, I've definitely had the goosebumps and the hair standing up on the back of my neck going, this is impossible. Like, it is that reality of landing at that, oh my God, magic is real sort of uh, situation because that was my first issue with joining the show was I can't see a clear path through this at all. I can't find a way to be able to hear what I should be hearing. And with the machine learning, with Mao on our side, we were able to actually enter a whole new phase of uh, editorial and mix. Because uh, a lot of the, the machine learning stuff is coming on stream now. There's the VoiceGate 2 and the new one from Waves. You can hear they're doing good things. I know, I've listened to them. And I know they're not quite as clean as Mao, but what they're not touching on is, is some of those uh, the, the deeper layers that uh, Mao was actually starting to, to pull apart and, and for us to be able to weave in, um, which, of course, means like editorially we're given so much more flexibility than just taking noise out of a situation. I would like to add one point about the types of models that we're using. Now, we're not using uh, synthesis models. We're not resynthesizing voices. You asked before if it revealed a lot of unheard moments and that sort of thing. You know, I, I, I quickly started thinking along the lines of that really, if on repeated listening as a human with our very well-developed audio brains can't discern what's being said, you know, if we can't train our own neural networks to understand what's going on there, it's, it's also a pretty difficult problem for machine learning to solve, if, if that makes sense. It's, it is sort of relevant in the restoration mm. aspect to this, um, in that um, there was some confidence in knowing that uncovering this conversation that's happening under this very loud band rehearsal is not, it's not generating that conversation, you know. It is just revealing what it can. Revealing, yeah. But it wouldn't always be perfect. It would reveal maybe a sometimes a muffled version of the conversation just because it is such a difficult problem to solve. But still, you know, miles ahead of what we were able to do. Absolutely. Before. Like the AI thing is so topical at the moment that it doesn't need to be pointed out uh, um, as much as the triumphs of how we were able to make our way through the show. But like at the same time that this was coming out, the Anthony Bourdain documentary was released. And I remember seeing that and sort of going, oh, they've used AI. And it's like, but that was uh, not source separation like we were using. That was, re you know, they were actually generating that audio. And because they had, you know, 6,000 hours of the man speaking, they, you know, they really could uh, make that happen. Uh, that technology is there, but that's absolutely not what we were doing with this project. Everything, as Emil was said, was really there on the tape. We've just figured out a way to actually use it in a smarter way than we've ever had before. But uh, in saying that, it certainly started as a separation problem, but then I found myself moving into other areas like unfiltering. Uh, so we did use a bit of that with that scene that you talked about uh, w with John singing and Paul reading the newspaper article. Some of those were sections of bootleg material that I matched to the other material using Mel. So um, essentially it unfilters that very bad bootleg recording to match the audio qualities of the um, Nagra tapes. Yeah. And they yeah. sounded quite different. Yeah. Yeah. That really did. Yeah, uh, and similarly on Flowerpot, which I think you were sent a little bit of a sample from that. Flowerpot, <laughs> it is a heinous recording. Just for context, for anyone uh, listening who hasn't actually seen the show, the what we call the Flowerpot recording was a secret recording that was done on uh, I think it was day eight. So it's the day after 
Oh, spoiler alert, sorry. Um, George had left the band <laughs> and uh, there was a lunch session that was happening and Michael Lindsay Hogg had placed a tape recorder inside a flower pot, hence the flower pot recordings. So the, the guys were unaware that they were being recorded at that point, but it was placed inside this flower pot that was very close to where the dining room was being cleared and there was just so much noise on it. So much clatter. It's very difficult to make out what's going on, but uh, it's certainly, I think, one of the great triumphs uh, of uh, um, the work that uh, the machine learning um, enabled us to, to do for the narrative on Get Back. Take it there with diddly 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 but I was trying last week to say that. And it's me like. The point is, what, 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 what have you? We both did not do this time. Um, I'll just add one more thing, and it's not a brag, but um, we actually had to dirty up the, the end result to make it sound a bit more. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we added some of those dishes back in. Yeah, we did. We added some of the cutlery yeah. and dishes back in. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. As, as an audio person that's also interested in machine learning, where sh where should audio people start to to kind of go down that particular rabbit hole? Like, what resources were important to you, Emil? Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, there's a really good YouTube channel that deals with machine learning for audio called The Sound of AI. I think that's a pretty good one. Uh, he does a few um, quite good courses. I mean, other than that, it's just uh, I I I learned most of what I did from um, teaching myself how to read white papers. Oh, man. It's a pretty daunting task. Like, honestly, every single word in the paper has a very deep meaning. Usually, you know, every, every symbol has a meaning. It's a very dense piece of information to try and take in. And, uh, you know, it sometimes took me a few weeks just to understand exactly what was being, uh, being said in, in various white papers. I was also uh, really fortunate enough to be... Um, able to consult with a machine learning lecturer from the University of Illinois, Paris Maragdis. So he's very experienced in machine learning for audio. So I had many hours of conversation with him. So at the same time, I was trying to get all this you know, workflow production. I was kind of learning the ropes with a lot of the theory behind it at the same time. Because a lot of it was based on academia, isn't it? I mean, effectively, we've, we've found, didn't you? I mean, yeah, and yeah. It's, which is quite a difference. There's a difference there, definitely, between academia and the sonic qualities we were looking for to a large yeah, degree. Well, yeah, well, the, what, what Paris mentioned as a, as a big difference in um, focus is the, um, you know, the focus on getting as good a metric as possible in academia versus our assessment is based on what we're hearing. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what the separation metric is for a model. If it sounds bad, it's bad. There's <laughs> no use for us. There was a book I read recently called uh, The Alignment Problem by Brian Christian, which is also a really, really good primer on machine learning that I would highly recommend right. to people that are interested in that as well. I'll tell you, a great moment uh, I recall in the machine learning journey was the first time that there was a call with Paris. Uh, Brent, myself and Steve were uh, in on that as well as uh, Andrew Moore. And the way that that was introduced was via um, Weta Digital's chief technology officer, Joe Marks, who on his first meeting with Peter and Fran, most of what they talked about was the Beatles project. And um, we just started to toy with the machine learning stuff. And he was like, oh, I know people that have been doing this. I've been involved in those projects for like 
going back 20 years, do you want to talk to someone? I've, I, can, I can hook you up with someone. And that person was Paris. And Joe explained, was like, you know, I love this idea of academic world and the creative world meeting. That's what I'm all about. So I'll come along and, you know, you guys think one way, academics think another. I'm, I'll be the translator if I need to. If I don't, I'll just step aside. And the cool thing was Joe came in, introduced everyone, and very quickly this very high-level conversation on machine learning started to transpire between Paris and Emil and Andrew. And I remember looking at Brent and Stephen and sort of going, okay, we're, we're off to the races. <laughs> We're in the game. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that is a testament to the amazing work that Emil and Andrew and the team did as a whole, obviously, in support and in and, and building this. But we're just so fortunate that uh, Emil actually, you know, basically did a master's, if not PhD level uh, machine learning um, run uh, inside the nine months that we needed it last year. Nine, you know? Yeah, wow. Um, the results do speak for themselves. And uh, we know when we listen to that original Nagra how much it had to to move, you know, to cut through. So it's it's remarkable, really. I don't think there could have been a more distilled, perfect team of individuals who were doing the show. Um, we had Emil and Andrew looking at the machine learning, Steve looking at music, Giles obviously overseeing the music. In terms of mix, we had me and Hedgie. Well, I'm kind of very much, but it just it just we had exactly the right people. I think if we'd had a really big team of people working on the show, it would have been a different paradigm to a large degree, maybe a bit easier. But it was just that because we were so tight together on the show, rolling through this, that it was just, yeah, I couldn't believe it. Yeah, you go. I was going to explain one thing, which kind of personifies, I think, where the machine learning, which was a little bit of a deal breaker for me, is that Emil would create a dialogue separation from a particular piece of audio, and I would remember going into the meal, having a listen with the meal, and would kind of play it back, and I'd say, okay, what's on the other side of, of effectively, what's on the inverse, which wasn't in a dialogue, and there may be something in there, and I would go, oh, well, look, that's fine, yeah, we can still mix our way out of that, there's maybe a little ghosting, or whatever it is, but as Emil explained it, he would say, no, it has to be the perfect separation, because if we're going to put that material back into the machine, for it to then continue learning... It's got that little ghosting of dialogue in it. So unless it's perfectly extracted, it's a fail. Which really came to me as a real point of um, where it's that exact bar that we're looking at in terms of the way Emil kind of was approaching the work, which um, really set it up for us. Yeah, I mean, it's worth pointing out, like this stuff is phase accurate, right? I mean, you can, all of these effectively stems that you can break out you can put them back together and you've got your original source and therefore mix what you want in and out but once you've pulled them apart the the sheer fact that there was <laughs> no problems with phases another one of those uh, yeah. head scratching events where it's like i just can't believe this i mean so much is happening and you're telling me i can just put it all back together uh, i i i consider that what my my work became once uh, we started using this machine learning was more to recreate the problem. So it's like the inverse of the usual restoration uh, workflow. Before I was spending uh, all my hours in, in RX painting out or using noise reduction, you know, all, all the time trying to remove the problem. And so instead of trying to remove the problem, uh, I'm trying to uh, recreate the problem in order to teach the machine what the problem is in the first place. 
Um, so it's still, you know, and, and that could sometimes involve maybe there's a, um, the band that's playing in the background, maybe the, uh, a little bit in the distance. So I uh, create a data set that has a bit of that room reverb on the drums in order to teach the model that this is what I want you to remove. So it's kind of an extension of sound editing. It's just a new paradigm. And um, a lot of the development and the direction we headed in was problem-driven. So Marty would come to me and he would be like, this is the problem I'm having right now. You know, Heather's voice is uh, you know, so loud in this control room. What can we do about it? And you know, that would uh, steer towards training a model that could remove Heather's voice uh, and then allow us to mix that back in at a different level. It's hard to be people's mother. Yeah, we're planning to do it anyway. For a couple of numbers. No, I don't think so, George. So I don't know if we've really touched on this, but working with machine learning really is a paradigm shift in the overall sound edit workflow. Well, there's the aspect of that we're creating our own toolkit. You know, I, I guess that's not necessarily machine learning unique. But the difference in machine learning is that you don't have to handcraft the underlying mechanism that operates on, on the data in a particular way. You just have to have a good architecture that's able to work in the domain that you're interested in and then let the machine work out how to manipulate that data on its own. Uh, so that's the, the big difference. And, and it's kind of a higher level approach to solving problems in that you're kind of thinking of this on human terms. And that's why it was so easy to, um, to anthropomorphize Mal, because we can turn to Mal. We can ask Mal to solve this problem, this quite simply described problem. You know, we, we want to remove Heather's voice or we want to make this bootleg sound more like a modern studio recording. <laughs> you know, that's been uh, quite a big shift in how the overall sound edit has been approached. Absolutely. It was really something special to be a part of, I can only imagine. And to not only be a part of it, but to be the reason why it took the world by storm. Because if the soundtrack wasn't the way it was, it wouldn't have taken the world by storm like that. So congratulations to you all. It's, it's really something special. No, it is. Because we knew the pitches were going to be absolutely standout. And our concern was that the audio would not match. And so it became really important to us that um, the sound did match because we, you know, within 30 seconds, you would have forgotten you were watching something shot 50 years ago, watching the show. And we really needed to try and get the audio to match that kind of level of it. And also Peter's, Peter's telling a story. Yeah, exactly. And Steve, I was going to say, um, I was going to say, we also had the privilege of being in the room when we would do reviews with Peter and he would, uh, as Steve was about probably to say, he would just let us into his world of his stories of Beatles and would be there for long after the review had finished, listening to Peter talk. So we were in a very, very verified and privileged position to, um, on the show too. Well, I feel like we literally could talk for many more hours, but uh, <laughs> I think okay, we should wrap it up it. there because it's, it's going to be a major project. We're, we're almost going to be the same length as the film. At this point. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to us today. Uh, this is going to be really fun. Uh, I'm really looking forward to getting this out for people to hear. It's great to speak with you and meet you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank Absolute you. pleasure. It's been a great time. Thank yeah. you, Tom. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Love your podcast. Thank you very oh, much. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Great work, guys. <laughs>
Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.